Today we're, <coughs> we're reading from Ephesians chapter 5, if you'd like to follow along. And we're starting at verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the... Whoops, just a minute. Lost my place. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother <coughs> and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying <coughs> that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, it was uh, marriage week a couple of weeks ago. And uh, if you missed it, don't worry, there'll be another marriage week next uh, year. Um, so I think last week uh, I said that it was marriage week and someone did say to me, it should be marriage week every week, but no, we only do it once a year apparently, so um, you'll be able to do that this time around next year, so that's good. Um, uh, just joking, we're going we're gonna to have a, a bit of a look at, uh, at marriage this, uh, today. Um, and as I was putting this sermon together, I was uh, just sort of thinking about what, what was the answer to a successful and biblical marriage. I think I found it. If we just look up on the screen. Can we go to the next slide, Don? Yeah. Oh, one too many, two too many. I think we have, we're having a bit of communication issues with that today, aren't we? All men should make coffee for their wives. It says it right in the Bible. Hebrews. <laughs> End of sermon. <laughs> this morning I want to explore marriage from a, a biblical perspective. What, what makes a healthy marriage? But I don't want to have uh, a 10-step checklist to create a health, healthy marriage. I'm hoping that at some stage, uh, possibly next year, that we'll run a marriage course. I know some of the young, uh, uh, sort of young marrieds are doing one of them soon. But I don't want to do that 10-point checklist this morning. Do this and you'll have a healthy marriage. That's not what I'm about this morning. And uh, 
I really only look, want to look at one thing, one thing this morning, one element that if we put it into practice will enhance our marriage. I don't know where each of you are, those who are married here this morning, I don't know where each of you are in your marriage relationship. You may have been happily married for 50 plus years, or you may be in the very first year or months of your marriage. What scripture says about the marriage relationship though, I believe will enhance your marriage in incredible ways. And I want to add that if you're here today and you've never been married, or you're looking to be married in the coming year or five or 10 or 15, or if, it's, if you're my daughter, 30 years, <laughs> she's four. <laughs> I want to suggest that this message is still for you as well. Don't, don't just tune off. I want to suggest that it is for you. Because as we consider what healthy marriage looks like, we're not just talking to individual couples as such, but we're talking about life behaviours that are so contradictory to today's society that, that they shape, that these, the way that we live can shape our culture and can shape a marriage culture that becomes a culture that is totally different to what today's level or standard of marriage says it has to be. And that's the whole doing that, creating culture based not, not around what I feel and what my choice might be, but rather a culture that's entwined and entangled in the depths of love that Jesus brings to each and every one of us and into the marriage relationship. Because we don't have to look too deep into our society to work out that marriage is actually not the bedrock that it once was. It's not that pillar of societal um, longings nowadays. Without looking at statistics, we can safely say that, that marriage doesn't hold the same reverence now than it did, say, 20 years ago or 40 years ago. It, 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 uh, whilst marriage might have had its ups and downs back then, marriage today sort of comes with a, a caveat that says, if I want out, I can get out a lot, easy, a lot more easy. It sort of says that society we live in today, that marriage is actually less conventional, than, uh, covenantal, I mean, than it has been in the past. And it's more about an experience. And if I'm no longer into that experience, then I can leave that. I'm a marriage celebrant, and I've married quite a few couples now. And I remember when I started performing weddings, that the one thing that I was keen to do was to see that, that no, none of my couples would have a, a marriage breakdown. That was the one thing I was really keen to do. And when we got married, Solara and I, uh, nearly 20 years ago, uh, we had that, uh, our, our pastor sort of said the same thing. Um, we we want to see marriages successful. Now, I know there's various reasons why that doesn't happen and why some, some have to be a basis of, um, of care for self. But when I come into the world now, into, into marriage, and we do marriage preparation, we see that there's such a different standard or a different culture around what commitment means. And I can understand why in some respects, because there's so much pressure on young couples today. Stats show that the cost alone of a wedding in Australia varies greatly. There was a results on Easy Weddings, a wedding industry uh, sort of survey, and it gave the average cost of a wedding at $31,368. $31,000. Or 
all the parents of young, young girls and boys are just sweating now, just going, oh my goodness. <laughs> there was a, a biannual survey on mywedding.com, and it said that the, uh, the cost of love shows an amount of $90,128. $90,000 for a wedding and all the preparation. That's a lot of money. So it's a pressure that goes on young couples. And then there's a pressure to find somewhere to live, a pressure of a mortgage, the cost of living that keeps going up, and the demands of work to sustain that living and life. Couple this with the fact that over 80% of marriages in Victoria are conducted outside the church and outside of having a Christian minister of religion uh, marrying them. Therefore, there's no pre-marriage sort of help or guidance. It just happens. There's no covenant between the couple and God. So we can understand why the divorce rate is very high as pressure piles on relationships and there just isn't the help that there could be. It's not just financial pressure. With the advent of the internet, um, the, the, the lure of advertising and all the stuff that comes around it plays against the marriage relationship as well. In essence, continually telling us that there's always something better we can find something better. Our culture drives people from sticking with marriage and saying, hey, this might be, you're not feeling great here, this might be better for you. It's a tough world to be married in. Solari, I, now please forgive me, I feel like I've told this story before. Um, I know I've only been here six months, but I've told a few stories, but I feel if I've told this one before, just smile and nod as if I haven't. That'd be really helpful. Um, when... Um, when we were, Slara and I had been dating for uh, probably f- uh, three or four years, I think, at this stage, we were, we were quite um, serious about, about our relationship, thinking that it's probably going to go down the road of marriage. Slara called me one, one afternoon and said, I'm really sorry, but um, my parents have arranged for me to be married to a, uh, to a guy in Sri Lanka, it's a rich family, and uh, I, I have to break up with you so that I can go to Sri Lanka and be married. I'm like, are you serious? I'm like, <laughs> I figured she was joking, but I'm like, no, hang on. Uh, and she, she just played along and along and along and started to get me a little worried. I'm like, are, are you for real? And like, this is, this is all her mum. If you knew her mum, this is her mum down to a T. But I was getting really worried that, that actually this was, this was a real thing. And I think there was someone, wasn't there, Slurry, that, that had asked for, for one of the daughters, one of the three daughters, to go over and, and marry them. I'm like, oh, wow. That's... And, and for me, in my Western Aussie way, I thought, that's not normal. That's not good. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> but I started thinking, well, if, if that was the case, how would they know if they're going to love each other? How are they going to know that? That's my Western thinking. In our culture in Australia, Slara and I had the opportunity to date. We dated for nearly five years before we got married. Um, we got to know each other. We, uh, um, we ha- I had the opportunity to pull the moves, and she had the opportunity to ask me out because I was too scared to do that. We were able to get e- to know each other's family really, really well, and we had enough information that we gathered from one another in this relationship to figure out that we could uh, make a really informed decision about marriage. We figured out that we'd be compatible enough to make the marriage work. Whereas a, whereas the, a culture that, that believes in that space of arranged marriage, well, they come together and then they work that out. Two different cultures. One is based on marriage that leads to love. 
and another that, based on love that leads to marriage. Which one's right? See, in our Western culture, we say that we're right. Of course we're right. How unjust that a person must marry someone that they don't know. Just look at married at first sight. Never works. Never works. But it's just because we're coming from a Western view, aren't we? And a different culture will see it differently. They'll look at us and go, what is the point of all that faff? (laughs) Each culture, though, regardless of what you believe, makes a massive impact on the marriage covenant, doesn't it? It's the effect of culture. Culture does shape how marriage works and our attitudes and actions about marriage. And unfortunately, the culture that we live in doesn't seem to enhance marriage as probably it should. Indeed, our culture has turned even further to, try, to a try-before-you-buy culture where, mar- where there's 80% of married couples were cohabitating, living together before they got married. It's a cultural trend that is going on in our society. However, the Christian marriage should not be based around society's cultural markers. Rather, we should be shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ and the word that gives life through the Holy Spirit. That's what Christian marriage should be based around. You see, Christian marriage is a marriage of two imperfect people made right before God, just as Jordan was saying, made righteous through Jesus Christ and full of the Holy Spirit. So whilst culture shapes our bias towards what marriage, sort of the marriage ideal, God has already shaped Marriage through the action of God and the redemption of those who believe in him. How we treat our spouse, therefore, should or should and must reflect, reflect the person that we're becoming in Christ. In our reading this morning uh, from Ephesians chapter 5, we started at verse 18, and I started there for a reason. And because the start of chapter 5 is all about living a life full of the Spirit. Nothing to do with marriage. It's all about living a life full of the Spirit of God. And the end of verse 18, it tells us that we must be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. It's not a one-off filling. It's a continual motion of being filled with the Spirit. It's like, who, who got the free coffees from 7-Eleven when uh, they, if you took your cup in... Dave up the back, good job. Yeah, a few people, good. It was a good thing because what you do is you go in, you take your your, your non-disposable cup in and you fill your coffee up and just show them as as you go out and you walk out the door without paying. It's a great system. um, But they didn't say, come and get your one coffee. They say, come and fill it up again and again. And for that whole month, you could just keep going back and filling up your coffee and not, not having to pay for it. It's a great system. It was that continual going back and being filled. Same sort of process and idea. We're to be continually, as we uh, seek God, as we get closer to God, be filled and continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit as we come to God and come before God. And verse 19 and 20 tells us how this happens or when this happens. It says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your, from your heart to God. You see, a, a Spirit-filled life is first and foremost a life of worship. A spirit-filled life is a life that exudes the worship of Jesus. This is the spirit-filled life that Paul dreams of seeing the Ephesian church embrace. Not just marriages, but the whole church. A church which is full of worship 
And that comes from being full of the Spirit of God. Not just the church when they gather together, but when they go to their homes, when they go out into their world. A church that is full of the Spirit of God. But then it turns to verse 21. And it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I don't know what your Bible says, and, um, uh, but mine, my Bible actually has a, a break between verse 20 and verse 21. Have a look in your Bibles if you've got them and see if you've got a break in between those two verses. Mine says there's a little heading. It says the Christian household. It's a little misleading, really. And I think as I, as I listened to um, Jenny share from her scriptures, it sort of flowed a little better than I think mine does. But... Um, it separates verse 20 and verse 21. But if you go back to the original Greek language, verse 21 is actually the conclusion to all the preceding verses. All this verse is about being filled with the Spirit and what that looks like. To be full of the Spirit is actually to submit to one another also as we are in relationship. To be full of the Spirit is actually to be humble enough to stop and listen to one another, to submit to one another. So within this text, the writer is looking towards those who are filled with the Spirit to be examples of Christ-likeness in a culture that they lived where submission equaled weakness or submission equaled a loss of power. And if we look back into our culture today, things haven't changed a whole lot, have they? To submit in the Aussie culture often means to be trodden on. Even the Collins Dictionary that I looked up defines submit in a culturally unfortunate way. It says, if you submit to something, you unwillingly allow something to be done to you. Or you do what someone wants. For example, because you're not powerful enough enough to resist it. Is that what submit really means? It gives us the idea that submission is a, a passive event, a, a, a sort of thing that happens. That the dominant person is always the one who's going to win. It can be in the workplace or in your family or it can even happen in the church where this idea of, of, of submission is a, a power battle of, of authority. The, the powerful will be the one that makes... The, the, takes the lead. The powerful will be the one that will trod over those who have submitted. Yet Paul, he, he breaks that. He says, no. He says, submit to one another. And he tells us why. Out of reverence for Christ. See, Paul's saying we're not only we're not to look at our relationships based on the cultural norm of the day. Rather, we need to base our relationships on being people filled with the Holy Spirit, even when that means that you'll be totally countercultural to what society tells you you need to be like. Relationships, not just marriage, but relationships, friendships, mutual friends that are Christ centric will be relationships of mutual submission. And you know, this doesn't just mean in a marriage relationship. It goes for just being people of Christ living in the same spaces. It is in this context, people filled with the Spirit, submitting in a mutual way through reverence for Christ, that Paul moves into a discussion about the marriage relationship. 
And with an understanding of Christian marriage being made up of two people, imperfect people, full of the Holy Spirit, being made right before God, we can enter into looking at Scripture's idea of building a healthy biblical marriage. Now, Solara and I have been married for, well, we've been married for 18 and a half years. And like most marriages, we've shared our times when marriage has been like waking up on a a beach uh, on a a beautiful sort of summer morning where the sun comes up, everything's idyllic, the the waves just lap at the shore and the the sounds just come through and it's all wonderful. Marriage can be like that, can't it? Fantastic. But there's been other times where it's been bleak, like a winter's day, a little bit like uh, the feeling we had yesterday after Collingwood's loss, that, that, that rough notion of, oh, it's tough, it's tough, but we'll get through, we'll make it to another year, uh, uh, Collingwood, we'll, we'll make it many more years of you know, marriage, but, with <laughs> but where communication might have been tough, or pressure is the work, work pressure or family life pressure has forced us backwards in, in, in how we de- develop our, our marriage. That's the nature of marriage. It's tough. Two imperfect people being made right coming into a relationship with Christ in the centre. But it is tough. But through the reflections of marriage, through my reflections of marriage, this idea of submitting to one another, there's only one thing that I want to share to you about marriage today. And that is marriage is not for me. Marriage is not for me. Maybe I should rephrase that and say marriage is not about me. <laughs> marriage is not about me because it's about the other. Marriage is about the other. When we understand that, we're more likely to be in healthy relationship. Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, says that the assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough, we might find that right person. And that might be okay. But the primary problem of, of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger for whom you find yourself married. See, destructive to this idea of marriage is that marriage is all about personal fulfillment. Why is it the case that we can find ourselves married or in a relationship with someone that we think that they weren't the same as that when we first got together or when we first got married? Let's look at it from a different angle. When you start a new job, and you might have started a new job in the last six months, you start settling in, people treat you really nicely, um, they're sussing you out, they start to think, well, what, what, what are they going to get from this relationship? with you coming on board as a person in their place. People who treat you well, they, um, they start to, to figure out that actually I can, I can get something from this person. And then after a set amount of time, they'll decide whether or not you're still worthy or not of their time, or whether they're still worthy to be treated well, or whether you should be taken out and someone else could come in and do this thing better. Have you changed in that 6 to 12 months? Well, of course you haven't. You're the same person. Yet as they have understood you deeper and as they've seen you work out on a daily basis what you do, they've learned about you, what they've learned about you is different to what they had in the very early impressions, aren't they? It's a different standard that they live by. And it does happen in marriage. Many call it the honeymoon period, and I like to think that the honeymoon period can last, and it does last, and it's a wonderful time. But there are times where the honeymoon period becomes more of a slog, 
Conversations become a little bit menial and you end up sitting in front of the TV with your phones in your hand. And communication resorts to the occasional grunt or laugh at something that you're looking at. Because it's in these times where we need to make sure that we remember that marriage is not about me. That we learn to love the person that you married. That we learn to love not the person you married, but the person that's sitting right in front of you. The person that you married, you might think, but it was easier to love them back then. I've forgotten how to communicate with them because it was so easy back then. But it's learning to love the one who is sitting